The second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, those who have lost something particularly know its value. So, if you want to know the value of health, the best thing that you can do is talk to somebody who has struggled with their health. The value of relationships can best be weighed by talking with those who have lost or who have suffered through broken relationships. And as we, in our own life, examine or pay attention to what we have lost, it is then sometimes that we can actually begin to know what we have. So it's important to listen to others who have a story of loss that can teach us something. These stories of loss help us to stay anchored and centered during particularly troubling times 
when we are trying to figure out how to find our way. Now, friends, I want to make another observation. Sometimes when we go through a story of loss, our temptation, or maybe I should say our first instinct, less of a temptation and more of an instinct, is that we run the risk of staying silent. We often don't want people to know about our loss, or we often want to minimize the losses that we have because it can be hard to share those with one another. But the reality that we're beginning to find is that we're reckoning with a cost either way. Whether we tell our stories out loud or whether we share them in some way or whether we stay silent, there is some cost to reckon with. And perhaps the invitation that our text is beginning to ask us today is how do we start to lift up that first layer of beginning to tell our stories, even the ones that deal with loss, beginning to tell our stories, even the good and the bad. How do we share the whole story or in as much as we feel as is right to our children? Because I think that particularly as we grow older, And even as we're being formed in our younger years, we desperately need to hear one another's stories. And in the absence of those stories, we begin to make up the plot as we go along, filling in the gaps that haven't yet been told. You see, it's the stories that we share, the stories that we share with one another, the stories that we choose to be vulnerable in and sharing with each other that actually provide the ground on which the community that's moving forward can dream its dreams. We can't dream our dreams unless we know what the past has been. We can't dream our dreams unless we are anchored to the stories of those who have gone before us. And that is really what the psalmist, if we were to turn back and think in our minds of Psalm 126, that is really what the psalmist is after today. Sharing the stories, but also helping the people to dream their dreams. You see, the stories don't just get lost in a vacuum. They're anchored to the future. The stories are not for some forgetful sleep, but they actually become fuel for the future to build itself on. And the dream then that the future can dream is a dream that is connected to the past and begins to think forward into a realistic future. Some of you might relate to Psalm 126 as we have an opportunity to look closely at that psalm today. Because Psalm 126 is the story or is a psalm of someone who knows what it's like to lose something. And if you note the wording in that psalm, you can hear that story. You see, the psalmist starts by remembering a time of healing, but the healing, it seems like the remembering of the healing is coming in the wake of another loss. So this isn't just a community that's lost something once, a community that's remembering a past loss and now is also dealing with a present loss and has to figure out how do we get through that loss that we're in right now. 
And the way that the psalmist begins to thread the way forward is by remembering the stories of the past so that they can begin to thread the anchor of the future. Remembering the stories of the past so that they can begin to thread the anchor of the future. And so even as the psalmist is in this time of deep loss, the writer starts by saying, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed, the psalmist says. I want to just give us a little bit of an understanding of what that word fortunes is all about. It's a funny word. I'm not quite sure why it's translated fortunes. It does have to do with sort of wealth, but it has to do with that which has been robbed from the community during a time of captivity. So it really has less to do with what the community has, and it has more to do with what the community has lost. So it has less to do with personal wealth and personal gain and more to do with the assets that are lost, that are sort of shredded from a community as it deals with the reality of captivity. And so the psalmist goes on, restore our fortunes, our assets, the strength of our community, the psalmist is praying for, like the waters in the Negev like the waters in the Negev. So much of the imagery of our texts uh, are often lost to us because we don't have the geography just sort of, sort of close at hand in our mind. And so the Negev for us is just another word. But the Negev for the psalmist would have been this rich source of imagery. Uh, some of you spend time in the desert and you know what it's like when the desert receives this really heavy, heavy rainstorm and all of these sort of dry riverbanks become just sources of flowing water. And it feels a little bit like night and day. One day it's a dry riverbank and then when the waters come, it becomes this sort of raging torrent that carries this current forward. And the Negev is this really dry part of Israel, but it also holds these dry riverbeds. So that when the waters would come into the Negev, one minute it would be sort of this parched land, and then the next minute it would be a place that would hold the water as the community was going forward. It would hold sort of these um, incredible torrents of raging rivers. And so water in this area is not taken for granted, and it's used as this incredible metaphor to help the community remember that that which has been lost can return. That that which has been lost can return. But in order for that to make sense, in the community that is living the life in dry land, you've got to figure out how to remember. You've got to figure that out. So the question it seems like that the psalmist is asking us today is not just how do we tell these stories when we're living in a time of great loss, but also, how do we put one foot in front of the other so that we can continue to build something even when everything around us is the dry land? 
even when everything around us is the world that is falling apart. And the psalmist puts it even more poetically, how do we sow even when we are weeping? How do we continue to sow even when everything that we see is causing us to weep? Can the dry land itself give us a way to remember our longings? And if so, then how do we build? What foot do we put in front of the other? The wonder of Psalm 26 is that it does two things at the same time. It helps us to lament the first thing, which is that healing is not yet here. And it also reminds us of the second thing, which is that building has to happen even during the time of drought. That building has to happen even during the time of drought. Perhaps the one way that we can figure out or gain strength or learn how to build during the time of drought is to listen to, those, to that lament of folks who have lost something. Because as we listen to those stories of loss that surround us, then we begin to see what needs to be built and we begin to see what it is that actually needs to be sown even when we can't even see it. When I think about the cycle of the Negev and how it functions within the land of Israel, the thing that it makes me think about here in the Pacific Northwest is the return of the salmon. Right? And there are so many upcoming festivals. In fact, yesterday I think there was one in Sultan, um, just along the river up in the Stevens Pass area, that celebrates this continual returning of the salmon to their natal waters. But then, as our thoughts return to the salmon, so they also might return to the people of the salmon, the people that stewarded and cared for the salmon from the beginning of human time on the, in this area. And here in Seattle, those are, of course, the Duwamish people. Not in and across the whole of the Northwest, but in our specific location, it's the Duwamish people who were the stewards of the land that helped to care for the cycle of the salmon. And I wonder how we begin the work of sowing, even when we are weeping, as we work towards community and hope in a place where so much has been damaged. You see, the wisdom of the psalmist is that we do not wait until everything is right to plant the first seed. But in fact, the sowing happens during the time when it seems like everything is wrong. And the sowing happens as we begin to listen to the folks who have lost something. And as we listen to those stories, then we begin to have clarity about what it is to sow. 
So how do we make space within our own lives to listen to the stories of those who have lost? Our parable today offers a little bit of direction, believe it or not. It feels almost dissonant from the text. It's a little bit of a harsh parable. We often don't know what to do with this parable of Luke 16, but it does offer some direction for our conversation today. If you were to reread this text in Luke 16, what you can begin to see is that the main violation of the rich man in the parable is that he is steeped through and through with assumption and entitlement. He's steeped through and through with assumption and entitlement. He assumes that he knows all of the solutions. And he exhibits the entitlement that those solutions should be doled out in the way that he sees fit. Right? Even as the chasm is built, and even as Abraham speaks to him and says that no one can go from this place to that place, even when his complete surroundings tell him otherwise, you can see that the assumption and the entitlement is so built into the fabric of who he is that he continues to live out of that when his surroundings tell him otherwise. And at the end of the day, the story of the rich man is not a story that makes space for any other story to be. It's his story. That's it. It's his story as the only story that needs to be told. And in this way, the rich man in this parable is judged extremely harshly. Rightly so, we should say. But at the end of the parable, there is a clue for healing. You see, what Abraham tells the rich man, and he gives him this insight, he says that if the brothers, if the rich man's brothers don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Sometimes the hardest thing when we're trying to make sense to listen to the stories of those who are lost or who have lost something, sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to listen to those in our closest proximity, to listen to those who are right in our own neighborhood, to listen to those who have a history that is a few miles away from us. That is sometimes the hardest thing for us to do as we make space within our own lives. But that is exactly the direction that Abraham gives this rich man. He says, pay attention to that which is in closest proximity to you. And not only just to one story. Notice that he doesn't just say Moses. He's not talking about the singular use of the law. He joins the prophets in that too. He says, and Moses and the prophets, by the way, don't necessarily go together. They are two things that have been put together by the story of a community over time. Okay? Moses didn't know the prophets were coming. Moses lived in the time of the law. The prophets lived later, much later in many cases. 
Okay, so that's the story of a history that has unraveled over time. And, and that is the direction that Abraham gives the rich man. Listen to the community of proximity that is around you. It's right in front of you. And as you listen, you will begin to hear the stories of those that have lost something. And as you recognize the stories of those who have lost something, only then will you know what it is to build. And only then will you be able to build during the time of weeping. We live in a time where we need to learn to make space for one another's stories. We live in a time where our story can't be the only story that is the one to be told. It has to be told in the context of a community. And that means that other stories need to have weight within that context as well. If we were to tune out the rest of the world and just talk, about the history of Seattle and just talk about the history even of Ballard and forget about everything outside of these borders, even then, we will need to listen to the stories of those who have lost, lost the rights to fish, lost the rights to manage the waters around them, lost the rights to help us understand how to steward and to make sense of a landscape and a forest. And if we were to move forward in our history, we would need to learn to make space for the stories of those who lost the right to be out past 10 o'clock at night, lost the right to live over a certain border, because they weren't allowed to come into certain parts of this city. Lost a right to be able to finance their own homes so that they wouldn't be living currently in an age of gentrification. You see, the psalmist anchors us in this reality that it's not just about us that we can look forward to the restoration that we are promised through this work of shalom. But it needs to happen together. And it needs to happen for everyone. We've been closing this series with a poem, and so I want to read um, a poem today from a Pakistani poet. Uh, her name is Fatima Azgar. Uh, she's a Muslim woman who was orphaned in her childhood and uh, who spent her early years living as an immigrant in the United States. And she writes a poem called For Peshawar, December 16th, 2014. Before attacking schools in Pakistan, the Taliban sends kafan, a white cloth that marks Muslim burials as a form of psychological terror. These are her words. From the moment our babies are born, are we meant to lower them into the ground, to dress them in white? 
They send flowers before guns, thorns plucked from stem. Every year I manage to live on this earth, I collect more questions than answers. In my dreams, the children are still alive at school, and in my dreams they play. I wish them a mundane life, arguments with parents, groundings, chasing a budding love around the playground, iced mango slices in the hot summer, lassie dripping from lips, fear of being unmarried, hatred of the family next door, keer at graduation, fingers licked with mendy, blisters at the back of a heel, loneliness in a bookstore, gold chapels, red kurtas, walking home, sun at their backs, searching the street for a missing glove, nothing glorious, a life, alive, I promise. I didn't know that I needed to worry about them until they were gone. You see, we never know what we have until we listen to those who have lost. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We speak from this place because you are a God of loss. You know loss better than any of us in this room. Help us to listen to you as we listen to those who have lost. In Christ we pray. Amen.